Blog Talk Radio. Desperate House Witches. I'm your host, Raina Starr. Desperate House Witches is not a GPG or even an R-rated show, so I may say something with bad language. It may upset you. I may say any number of things that may upset you, but I hope you stick around anyway because it's going to be a great show today. Desperate House Witches is brought to you by the one, the only, the incredibly wicked one herself, Dorothy Morrison. Check out wickedwitchstudios.com, and if you go to her Facebook page, you will see she is doing mystery boxes for the merry, merry month of Morrison. It is Dorothy's birthday month, and as she does every year, something special, and this year is no exception. So check out wickedwitchstudios.com. Get your mystery packages. There's a number of types to select from. You will not be disappointed. Okay, I am so excited for today's guest, and I know how I build the show. And the show was titled Flower Essences from the Witch's Garden, which is by my guest, Nicholas Pearson. But um, we are going to talk about that, but we are really going to focus this hour on ethically sourced crystals because this is something – I admit my ignorance, Christopher uh, – uh, Nicholas, I'm so sorry. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited. I'm, like, tripping over my words. How are you? I'm great. I'm really looking forward to our chat as well, and, and thank you for having me back on the show. Oh, absolutely. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, you've written, you've, you're, you're, you've got this new book coming out, but bef- before we even talk about that, you know, you released Crystal Basics, Stones of the Goddess. I mean, you've really fostered in part, my love of crystals. I have been collecting them more and more since the last time I spoke to you. And I actually, I had a question for you. Can you tell a lot about a person from what they seem to lean towards crystal-wise or stone-wise? Um, you know, I like to think there are clues in what we collect. Certainly there aren't hard and mm-hmm. fast rules, uh, but one of my mentors in the world of crystal healing, her name was Jane Ann Dow. She wrote this brilliant but sadly out-of-print book called Crystal Journey, a travel guide for mm. the, the new shaman. And it was about really learning to see the patterns, the messages in the mineral kingdom. And her approach to crystal mm-hmm. healing was a very collaborative one. So when she saw clients, she allowed them to pick the stones they are most drawn to. And she kind of built this elaborate system of interpreting what might be going on in their subconscious, in their lives, um, in the spiritual patterning, underpinning all sorts of stuff based on the crystals they were attracted to, how they arranged them, what, what kinds of families of stones they brought together. So that is work that has deeply influenced my approach to crystals. But I will also put out the caveat that I, I never set out interpreting someone's crystal collection without expressing uh-huh. direct permission or consent. 
I never go, oh, clearly you've got a lot of blank going on because you really love fluoride. I, I, I never do that. I never okay. presume to know that there's an absolute pattern there. Oh, okay. So if I tell you what I'm drawn to, it would give you an idea. If I gave you permission and said, Nicholas, this is what I collect, what do you think? You'd be able to Yeah, do that. I'd be happy to. Let's give it a try. Okay. Let's give it a try. Here is what I am very drawn to, and I have large amounts of. I have hematoid crystal. I have golden sheen obsidian, and I am absolutely freakish about labradorite. <laughs> well, here's, here's a common trend I might see in all of those stones. Um, you know, first off, the optical effects. Rather than just ordinary quartz, you, you've got the stuff with that beautiful iron staining or iron-rich hematite inclusions in them that kind of alter the color. Some mm-hmm. of those can be iridescent. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're not. You've got the golden sheen yeah. obsidian, which gets its color from tiny little aggregates of microscopic crystals or water bubbles or gas bubbles that have what we call preferential orientation. It means they're all facing the same way. It means evidence of the flow of lava and a whole bunch of other things, um, which we don't have to get into the geology of. Um, but that's what produces that really distinctive sheen. And then, of course, labradorite has the property called labradorescence, the beautiful kind of iridescence that gives us that play of color. And one thing mm-hmm. I might interpret faced with all three of these crystals is maybe a, a reminder for conscientious grounding, support, um, enforcing healthy boundaries. And if I saw someone mm. who was drawn to these kinds of stones time and time again, it might indicate that boundaries could be a lesson they were learning or maybe learning new ways wow. to approach boundaries and create them in healthy patterns. Brilliant. I love that. That's amazing um, and accurate. So thank you. I, I'm glad you were willing to do that experiment with me. That's very cool. I am learning about certain types of boundaries and how to enforce them and how to maybe let certain boundaries not be as hardcore as they were previously. So thank you. That's very, very cool. Um but, yeah, you know, you had said to me about ethically sourcing crystals, and I went, excuse me, what? And I was like, oh, my God, I didn't even think about it. And I know if I didn't think about it, there's probably a lot of folks who haven't thought about it either. So I really wanted to get deep into that today. Um, I know that there are a lot of things that are passed off as one type of thing when they're really something else. Um, so I, I definitely want to pick your brain about how do you know what you're getting, um, how do you research who you're getting it from, all of these things. So kick us off. Where do we start? Oh man, it's such a it's such a deep and complex issue. So there's there's a saying out there: if it isn't grown. It's mind. In other words, if, if you are like getting a product, any product at all, whether it is a, a new cell phone or a box of cereal, the components in it ultimately are derived from nature. Sometimes it's many, many links yeah. in the chain before it actually came out of Mother Earth. But it, generally speaking, comes from a resource that can be grown by living things or mined mm-hmm. from the geosphere. Everything out there in one way or the other relates to these two themes. So obviously my work tends to be more aligned with rocks. So that's what we're going to focus on today. But that means there's almost yeah. nothing you, that 
there's almost nothing out there you can't buy that if it isn't a vegetable origin is of mineral origin. So whether that is mm-hmm. paints in your home or car parts or, uh, you know, new electronics, the carpet below your feet, all these kinds of things, they, they ultimately have um, origins that are mineralogical. So everything that we do is somehow influenced by mining and extraction. Our, mm. our cars, most of them work on fossil fuels. We have plastics everywhere, which are petrochemical, petro from Greek mm-hmm. meaning rock or stone. Um, you know, those are made from the same kinds of things that are uh, petrochemical, uh, like, like fossil fuels. Um, and so uh-huh. we can't escape the idea that everything we do somehow interacts with the mining industry. It's not just mm. the beautiful crystals we put on our shelves. It's not just the things that we know to be of mineral origin because it still resembles a rock, but it's, it's our whole lives. So starting to mm. look at the question of ethical sourcing for, for the mining and extraction industry really involves a whole bunch of like nuanced questions. But since we're here to talk mostly about crystals, let's just dive right into that. The, the first thing you got to do is you got to know that not all crystals are ethically sourced. In fact, probably the majority. And that's not to say that the mining yeah. industry is this big, evil, horrible, ugly thing, but it just means that most of mining isn't set up in a way to start on a platform that respects Mother Nature, the environment, mm-hmm. human life, yeah. and equitable business. Because most of the world is capitalist. So <laughs> capitalism and, yeah. and equity don't necessarily go hand in hand. And while there are people trying to offset that paradigm, the, the, the bigger pattern is that in, in a world that works by capitalism, we're, we're going to enact some kind of violence or harm on other systems. So even when we go to the store and get a piece of rose quartz, there, there are ripples to that effect. So we have to start by asking questions and the easiest thing we can do when we go to the crystal store if we want to be more educated is just simply to ask what is the provenance of this stone do you know where it comes from Mm -hmm. and that's kind of a charged question because you know a lot of crystal stores a lot of metaphysical stores um, like other retailers don't give away their trade secrets they're not necessarily going to tell you the names of vendors and the exact supply chain but Asking this relatively innocuous question opens the door for an understanding of, you know, where in the world does this crystal come from? Is this piece of rose quartz from South Dakota? Is it from Brazil? Mm. Is it from South Africa yeah. or Malawi or Mongolia? These are, these are all valid places to get rose quartz. And then there are hundreds and hundreds of others. So knowing just where something comes from can sometimes give us clues. These days, rocks okay. that are mined in the U.S., tend to mm-hmm. be more, we'll say, rigorously, um, rigorous, rigorously minded than stones that don't come from the U.S. We have stricter laws enforcing mining extraction here on our own soil than lots of other places do. So, you know, that's one thing. Yeah. Buy from historic places. Buy from places where you can identify the provenance. Lots of rock and mineral vendors, which aren't necessarily, you know, the, the people who um, make their money by selling to the woo-woo crowd. I love the woo-woo crowd, but I'm also a science guy, so I buy from a lot of people who specialize in, like, mineral specimens. 
um, big and small, uh-huh. inexpensive and, and very expensive. Um, and those are usually areas where like the provenance is known because collectors of minerals, people are interested in, in the hobby of mineral collecting and the history of mining extraction. They care about that supply chain. They care about where things come from and how they get to where they are today. So that's, that's one little thing you can do. Start asking about provenance. And as we do that, our woo-woo vendors are going to start caring too. It creates the precedent that we want to know where our stones come from and how they came to us. So it's like the, the simplest mm-hmm. little thing. It doesn't feel like it does much, but if enough people are asking these questions, then the market begins to adapt in response. It's like my, my first mm-hmm. little piece of advice to give to anyone who wants an ethically sourced stone. Yeah. So <clears throat> I have people that I specifically buy from. And I have never, and I admit full ignorance here, um, but willing to learn. So how do I approach somebody that I've been dealing with for a really long time as far as where I've been getting my crystals from? As far as, because you don't want to create a negative impact on your relationships and it is all interconnected. And what is the responsibility of the seller to necessarily know or find out and is it and as you said it's it's not something that people necessarily want to discuss because they don't want to give away trade secrets but are there specific places that one should stay away from or are there places that we already know where certain things come from and they're not ethically sourced and we need to avoid specific places like how do you even start this question if you've been if you've been buying for a long time and now all of a sudden you have all these questions about the stuff you've been buying? I mean, I have a fortune. Um, since the yeah. last time we spoke, I, I have probably sunk a couple of thousand dollars easily into crystal skulls and and um, altar stones and. I mean, all palm stones, all kinds of pieces that I now have, crystal points, um, auralite, I mean, name it. I've got something of everything. What I mentioned to you earlier is my what I tend to lean towards, but that doesn't stop me from buying other things as well. I buy a lot of stuff. I totally get it. I really like stuff, and I especially like stuff when it's rock. So I buy a lot of rocks. Um, so, you know, when we're, when we're kind of exploring ideas, like how do we know if the stones we've already gotten are ethically sourced or not? Um, yeah. you know, I'm not a throw the baby out with the bathwater kind of person. You already have the rock. Right. Whatever ripples were created by it being extracted have, have come and gone. So I'm, I'm not the kind of person who's going to pass judgment on, on past behaviors, especially when, when we just don't know better. And a large part right. of the market just doesn't know better. Even, even our sellers don't know better because they've never stopped to consider it. You know, if you go, hey, do you know where this tumbled piece of citrine came from? The answer is probably right. from my vendor. And that's all they know because that's all that's just close to them as well. So part, part right. of what we do by asking questions about provenance is we're, we're kind of like training the people we buy rocks from to start thinking in terms of that. <laughs> so they start asking those questions to their sources. Well, where does this come from? How do you get it? 
And it's a slow Mm -hmm. process. This is not like instant overnight change. You don't like go to the crystal store, ask where the tumbled citrine came from, and next week come to find out that all of their stock has been turned over and transformed into ethically sourced crystals. It just doesn't happen like that, Um, as as nice as that might be. But what we do is we create new ripples. We create new decisions. There certainly are locations that are rife with conflict where we know stones are not being ethically sourced on a pretty widespread basis. Um, Most Mm -hmm. of the lapis lazuli on the market comes from Afghanistan, and most of the mining operations in Afghanistan in some way uh, benefit terrorist forces. I I mean, even even if they don't um, de jure own the mines, they they Mm -hmm. kind of you know, stake out the trade routes. They impose their own tariffs and taxes on people coming and going from the mine. Miners are forced to turn over um, profits and and materials, products that, that they're getting out of there. And so by the time we get a piece of lapis lazuli from Afghanistan, it's really hard to know if it came from, uh, you know, something that is supporting weapons trading or if it's supporting small artisanal miners. We, we just can't know in all cases because both of those things coexist in the same places. Um, Madagascar right. is a really great example of, of far ends of the spectrum. There are people who mine rose quartz in Madagascar who, who mine, thing by, mine this stuff by the tonnage and, and barely make a living wage, barely can support themselves, let alone families. And there are very, mm-hmm. very young people and very unwell people doing this work because it's the only work to do. And then there are other people in Madagascar who own mining operations who are going out of their way to ensure safe conditions, to ensure people getting mm-hmm. at least a living wage. Um, and you can't always know just by country of origin. But we have to start placing the expectation that we care about this stuff. We have to start letting the market as a whole know that we want stones that are not gotten with blood money, that aren't supporting um, violence and war, that aren't supporting, um, you know, these sort of atrocities to human rights. And you can't always know until you start asking. And we have to get uncomfortable with not knowing. You have to get on, you have to get really comfortable with the idea that your seller doesn't have all the answers and probably hasn't thought about it. And their seller doesn't have all the answers because they haven't thought about it. But more and more, we're seeing small mining operations. We're seeing um, people wanting to go out and dig in their backyards or, you know, their metaphorical backyards and, and do all these like little teeny mining and, and digging adventures. And, you know, thanks to the Internet, I mean, I can scroll through my Instagram feed and see lots of people who are out in California or in the outback of Australia or, I mean, heck, going to you know, public mines in places like Arkansas and New York and, and, and getting things from digs and safe and sane ways. And then they're mm-hmm. doing the work with minimal environmental impact. I buy directly from them and there's no additional carbon footprint. It's just, they went to the mine, they sent it to me. I have a rock. So looking for short supply chains is, is one way that we can do that. Um, in my day job, I work in a, in a cult and metaphysical bookstore, and one of our favorite vendors is, is someone who does business directly with miners, whether that is here in North America or overseas. He does a lot of really great importing from various nations in Africa, and we know for a fact from 
the, the evidence of the stories he tells, the photographs he shares, that when he buys stuff, you know, money is going into the hands of people who are actually doing the labor and not the big mining industries. Um, When we get all these Mm -hmm. beautiful domestic rocks that he's bringing over, they're things that come from historic locations and collections. And, um, you know, some of it is stuff that that is really, really old. So it hasn't been mined in a long time. So, you know, there's no new new ripple being made from that. So those those are all things we can consider too. Buy old rocks. Buy things from old collections. Sometimes when you buy uh-huh. historic stuff, when you buy things with small artisanal um, origin stories, you're going to pay a little bit more. But we already pay more for organic produce and other environmentally responsible mm-hmm. things. So it stands to reason we can do that with our rocks, too. Wow. That's, yeah, that makes sense, I have to say. It's not something I had thought about before, but it absolutely makes a lot of sense. So, you had mentioned Afghanistan as being a source of certain things. Um, I've noticed that a lot of what I get is from Brazil. Can you address any of, of what that potentially could be on the negative or the positive? You know, never having visited Brazil myself, but having great relationships with people who are in the mining industry down there who bring crystals back and forth, who work in the jewelry trade, it's a really big disparity. Um, There are literally places Mm. in Brazil where you can just go visit farmland and you can just dig Uh a couple feet down in a random spot in a field and more than likely you're going to find some quartz. If you dig deep enough and wide enough, you're going to find quartz. And that's, you know, that's, that's pretty low impact mining there. That, that doesn't mean that they're not also blasting things out of, um, mountain faces and cave walls and doing strip mining. That is absolutely also happening. Um, but Brazil's a really big place. Um, it's a massive, massive nation, and there are so many different um, biomes and ecosystems represented in there, and a lot of different geological events also represented there. So um, because there's so much variety, you can't just without a doubt say all of these are good or all of these are bad. But, um, you know, I yeah. know lots of people who who make the trips themselves to the mine, pay people what their effort and energy and time and resources are worth, and then bring it back themselves. And then, you know, we get all this beautiful tumbled stuff that might come from Brazil or other places, and it gets shipped halfway around the world to be tumbled in places like China or South Africa, and then brought oh, yeah. back in drums. And, you know, by the time mm-hmm. it comes back, the, the actual origin is, is kind of obscured. Lots of times the, the big distributors can only tell you where st- well can only guarantee you where things were polished and sometimes yeah. they can also tell you w- what the nation of origin was when it comes to that initial extraction and sometimes they can't because i mean we're talking you know tumbled stones by the tonnage so it, it it's not always something to keep track of so um we have to we have to be willing to deal with that discomfort that sort of cognitive dissonance of knowing i should do better but not not being able to always have an actionable step. Once you've asked the question, where does it come from? Is this ethically sourced? And you're met with a big, I don't know. What do you do? Well, you start to make conscious decisions. Well, I know so-and-so told me about this supply chain, and I feel really good about supporting that, so I'm going to. Or you say, mm, well, I, I know that the issues in Myanmar are not really good right now when it comes to the mining industry, so maybe I'm going to choose not to buy any stones from Myanmar, at least for the time being, where here's mm-hmm. an alternative. 
go into your backyard. What stones can you find? What rocks are there? What is on your land right now? It might not be a fancy emerald or a beautiful smoky quartz crystal. It might not be a nice shiny piece of pyrite. But then again, maybe it is. So I think exploring your local rocks is also a really good alternative. And when it comes to like magic, witchcraft, folk healing, these are the stones that historically have been used by the people for millennia since the beginning of time. Yes, crystals have been something that have beguiled humanity since the beginning of time as well, but not everybody has always had access to precious gemstones. In fact, for the majority of human history, most people cannot and could not afford the really precious stuff. So what did they do? They looked at the gifts of their land. Maybe it was an unusual common stone, a piece of um, flint. Maybe it was a stone pierced by a hole that they found in the river or at the shore. Maybe it was a strange fossil, the explanation for which they, they didn't quite have. Maybe they knew exactly that they were looking for granite. So that's what they went out to find because the energy of granite is the perfect complement to the work they're doing. So I, I think looking at your local rocks is a really, really great way to kind of offset the, the mining industry. If you want a smaller footprint, go do it yourself. Do it responsibly. And then you don't have to strip mine to get all your wonderful stones. Wow. Okay. I feel totally called out. Not by you, but by the truth of what you're saying. Um, and that's probably a really good thing. Um, because, you know, I'm of a certain age and of a certain income that when I see a pretty shiny, <laughs> I'm like, I want the pretty shiny, but do I really need it? Not necessarily, because there's a lot of truth to what you say, and I had not thought about that. There is a lot out there that is local to everyone. I am sure if I walk the perimeter of my parking lot right now, I could probably find something that I could connect to. So For I think sure. that's a really important I think that's an important point. It's nice to have the pretties and the shinies, but unless you're actually working with them and really connecting with them, and I will be the first to admit, I've been known to buy shit just because I like the way it looks. I have three, <laughs> I've been married three times. I am living proof um, that I like the shiny things. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but it's true. I, I like things that are physically appealing. I'm a Libra. I completely own it um, because I'm almost 60, and at this point I better fucking own it. But it, that's just the truth, you know, and I think – Maybe I am dazzled by the pretty stuff when I really need to concentrate more on the actual working stuff and what's available. And, you know, now that I know to even ask these questions, um, yeah, I have a lot of questions, you know, as far as who, you know, who the, I mean, I love who I deal with, but I don't know if they know who they're dealing with. So it does create a chain effect of, questions because I am going to start asking <laughs> you know and um, I don't know I don't know if I'm going to be able to get the answers and I'm sure a lot of folks uh, w who are interested in finding out the origin or the proven provenance as you say of, of these particular materials 
you know, there may be pushback. It is a capitalist society, and you may not get an answer at all. I think the point is is to at least try, is it not? Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, I think it's really important to try with as, as little judgment as possible. We're not here to condemn someone for having to survive in a society that's built in a very specific way. I don't want anyone to feel guilty for the stones that they've bought. I don't want anyone to feel remorse that they didn't know better because, like, the, the market is designed so you don't know better. That's, that's the whole purpose mm-hmm. of what's going on here. Like, there's nothing new, and it's not unique to crystals. And if we really want to talk about environmental and social impact of mining and extraction, kinds of horrible atrocities that take place in the crystal healing world are the tiniest drop in the sea of what happens in mining and extraction. There are so many rocks and minerals that come to the market, whether that is metaphysical or otherwise, that are byproducts of other kinds of mining. If you go to places like um, the Democratic Republic of the Congo right now, where some of the most gorgeous mm-hmm. malachite and azurite and cobaltoin calcite and lots of other wonderful things are coming from, um, the, ma- the majority of that stuff isn't necessarily found to be sold as mineral specimens. They're finding things like heterogenite, which is a cobalt-bearing ore, or um, mm-hmm. you know, other, other precious metals. Uh, and these are kind of like the byproducts, the castoffs, what we call the gang minerals. And, uh, you know, the great thing about mining those things as well, if they're in the way and you've got to move them to get the more valuable stuff, rather than creating an environmental hazard by leaving the stuff that can break down and poison stuff, they can bring it to market. Locals can sell more rocks to earn more income. And there are people who are, like, actively seeking these these local miners, these local inhabitants, and teaching them what to identify, not just the valuable ores that are going into our cell phones, um, but how to use those sort of cast-offs. A lot of quartz and calcite is an indication that more valuable stuff might be nearby in, a, in the same mm-hmm. vein in a mine. Or, you know, it's, it's not just that horrible things are happening because we all want rose quartz. What's happening is we live in a world where the mica – that is used to create glitter in our um, makeup is, is mined with child labor. We have cell phones, the, the likes of which require very rare um, mineralogical things, uh, very precious metals that are extracted with horrific impact on the environment and, and horrible you know, human labor conditions. And we use these cell phones to create our beautiful PSAs on the internet with our painted faces denouncing the horrors of mining rose quartz when really the device that we're, we're creating the PSA on and the paint in our face is of worse impact than those tumbled stones that someone who didn't know better bought because they were genuinely interested in personal growth and development. So there's no part of this that isn't affected by mining and industry. Again, if it isn't grown, it's mined. So your cell phone was mm-hmm. not picked from a beautiful flowering tree. <laughs> All the stuff yeah, in it true. came from these yeah. mineralogical resources. And we can't just look at one sector of the market and expect, expect putting that one under scrutiny to fix the rest. And really, the rest of the stuff is causing much more harm. So, um, you know, we have to do things like recycle. We have to start um, holding 
the big players responsible, you know, on an individual level, collectively, we can, we can do some good. But it's big industry that causes the biggest pollution. It's big industry that creates the most human rights violations. It's big industry that is destroying the environment far faster than the common consumers put together. So, of course, I want us to ethically source our rose quartz. But I also want us to stop and think about what happens when we buy a new iPhone and what that's telling the market. It's telling the market it's okay to keep mining and extracting the way it is, to keep producing them with the kind of labor that they're doing in the kind of conditions that they're doing it, and then charging that monumental increase in price because this is a hot commodity. And if you think that um, buying a piece of rose quartz is equivalent to that, then I've got news for you. It really is not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, you know, even a small change, because obviously – if you examined how what we do every day does something to destroy the environment, not just here but around the world, I don't think some of us would get out of bed in the morning, you know? So it's, I mean, I feel like it's it's kind of a pick your battles thing um, where you can do better, do better as much as, you can as much as in your knowledge, like I just learned from you. So, you know, therefore I can employ some of that knowledge in the next thing I do concerning, you know, how I purchase makeup or earrings or because, you know, I just bought a pair of coral earrings. I didn't ask where the coral came from, and I should have. Now I know. I should ask, <laughs> you know. Um, I just thought they were a pretty pair of earrings. So it does go to everything, but at least when you have some kind of knowledge, you can employ it, you know. Maybe you can't employ it to every – I mean, I can't go to my employer and say, well, where did we get this, you know, how was this chair made, where did the metal come from? Yeah, and, and right. make a judgment about it because this is this is how I'm making a living. I'm here to help people keep their stuff in good working order. There's a limit to how much barking I can do in an industry where I know um, at, there were points where um, rosewood was mined or harvested, I should say, and that is now a protected source. You can't do it's not even legal to have it in any kind of a new way anymore. So now there are um, substitutes that are not endangered that we use instead. Um, had we known in the 70s or had they known in the 70s when they were producing these very beautiful and very specific pieces of furniture that they were destroying all of this that was coming out of the rainforest, maybe they would have picked something else at the time. But at the time that these things were being made in the 60s and 50s and 70s, they thought there was an endless supply. There's, there's not necessarily a way to know how it's going to turn out. What I would say is if you know that a source of something that is grown or, or mined is being depleted in such a way that we could be in danger of losing it, that may, may be the point where you want to stop and consider reharvesting or maybe looking to something else as a substitute. What do you think about that? Oh, yeah. I mean, 
Geological events are constantly ongoing. New rock is always being formed. Minerals are constantly growing in the Earth's crust and on its surface. But, you know, geological time scale is what they call deep time. It is very, very slow going. You don't get a new batch of quartz crystals popping up in the mines in Brazil overnight. It's not like, you know, kale or spinach that we can harvest and, and plant new seeds every season and get new crop. This is really, really slow going. So the idea of of um, being mindful of finite resources is is really important. You know, we, we talk about these things when it comes to fossil fuels, but we don't tend to talk about them from other things that are, you know, geological in nature. And there, there definitely are finite resources as the number of people who are interested in gemstones and jewelry and crystals and mineral specimens increases. The, the number of us who need to wake up and start thinking about these things also increases. And I'm no expert in mining. I, I just want to put that out there. Like, I don't, I don't have a degree in mining and extraction. Um, I very briefly mm-hmm. considered going to school for that, and it was not the route for me because the only way to make a living is basically telling people where to drill for oil, and I, I could not live with myself if that were my job. But right. the beautiful thing is that I've, I've been lucky enough to work with geologists and petrologists and soil engineers and um, all sorts of other people who, who are in STEM um, fields that, that deal with, say, things that are mineral and mineral adjacent. And I've, I've been able to learn. And, mm-hmm. you know, in the Internet age, we can all be researchers. We can all be a little bit better informed. We just have to start looking for these things. So I'm... I'm certainly not the spokesperson for, for the mining and extraction industries. I don't have all those answers. But what I do see right. is what happens on the metaphysical side of things with the supply chain there, because that's where I'm most involved. And there mm-hmm. really are shifts in the trend. People care. Things are slowly changing. They're going to have to change a heck of a lot faster. Um, you know, I, I mm-hmm. worry about what's going to happen if we deplete all the good gem quality quartz that's coming out of Colombia. Like what's, what's going to be the next it thing? What are we going to tear through and blast apart and dig out of the earth next Mm. when, when that's all gone, because we'll constantly be feeding this hunger. And I think a really great way to, to see the picture is that it's, it's not really just a, a crystal problem. It's not a mining and extraction problem, but it's a human condition kind of problem. In a world where mm-hmm. we are rewarded for having more, gaining more, acquiring, mm-hmm. um, owning, subverting, then we're always going to encounter these things, no matter what the market is, whether it is um, the over-harvesting of, um, you know, biological things, you know, overfishing, um, deforesting the rainforest, whatever it might be, or whether it's mining too much of a precious resource. We, we, it all comes mm-hmm. back to the same fundamental problem that I think a lot of us are aware of and, and feel kind of powerless because we're all mm-hmm. just a little teeny tiny drop in the ocean. But if we all start asking these questions, if we all start making slightly more ethical choices about the consumption of our natural resources, then we, we start to create a trend. And here's the beautiful thing about capitalism. The market responds to trends. If we put depends mm-hmm. on the market for the market to survive, it will have to change and adapt. And that is the nature of the beast here. So I think as, as consumers, it is our job to demand of the market that it does better. We do that very, very 
subtly by going into our, our favorite crystal stores or our conventional jewelry stores and asking, so can you tell me about the origin of this stone here? What about the metals yeah. in, in these earrings? Um, there are people out there who are actively working in using reclaimed metals and reclaimed stones and other materials in their jewelry. There are people who are recycling things and, and, and turning them into brand new resources for us to consume, but it's not placing a new demand, a new strain on the environment. So um, I'm excited to see what comes next. Um, but, yeah. you know, of course, with that savviness, there's, there's always someone who's kind of working behind the scenes and we'll say less than transparent ways. And a really, a really strange and harrowing thing on the crystal healing market is people are taking common rocks and rebranding them and selling them for many times what they're worth. And that, that kind of ties into this whole idea of ethically sourcing our stones, because if you don't know that what you're buying is a piece of granite that someone picked up off the side of the road, of course, there's a mm -hmm. very, very small environmental impact in that kind of extraction. But mm -hmm. by the same token, it's, it's creating an artificial demand on the market for a rock that isn't really a rock. If we're buying something as Vitalite, when it is really the world's most common metamorphic rock, um, called mm -hmm. NICE, G-N-E-I-S-S, or if we're buying this amazing stone that's really a pegnatite or um, a diorite or granite or gabbro, just a common igneous rock, then, you know, we're, we're doing the greater crystal healing community a disservice because it shows that we are not educated and people can take advantage of us. Mm -hmm. And we're also doing yeah. the earth a disservice because it means someone can sell us anything and then they will go to great lengths to mine as much of that anything as they can. It won't start out innocently picking up it won't stay the way it started out with innocently picking up stuff off the side of the road. It's going to turn into large scale mining and extraction. So, you know, one of the things I've been really vocal and passionate about lately is tackling these kind of silly trade names that crystals get. And there are so many, and there are new ones coming up every single year. And if you don't know better and you think you can trust your sources, or if your sources don't know better, then, you know, we end up with this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy here. What kind of a trade name are you referring to? Because I, I, I'm, I want to make sure I understand. Sure. So, I mean, um, there are a lot of crystals these days that have like a really, we'll say, metaphysical sounding name, uh, like Guardianite or Terraluminite, um, you know, mm -hmm. where a, a common word is getting the, the ITE ending slapped on. And some of these are very yes. common materials. So Merlinite oh. is a really good example. Merlinite is a really oh. vague term because it, it describes no fewer than five different rocks and minerals. Um, I did a recent post on this on my social media. So um, if anyone tracks me down, you'll, you'll see me kind of give you a, a, a very, very brief history of how this term has evolved. But currently, because the earliest versions of rocks called Merlinite are, are, are less accessible on the market, someone has trademarked the name uh -huh. Mystic Merlinite and applied it to a common... Um, a common form of igneous rock, which is called gabbro. So think of gabbro as like the sister stone to granite, slightly different in composition, but wow. forms under the same condition. And if you read, uh -huh. if you read the descriptions of this stone from, from the official seller, the person who has trademarked it, um, they use, uh -huh. they use really vague terminology. So for example, here we go, I'll quote, mystic merlinite trademark is a unique gemstone discovered uh -huh. on a remote Island in the Indian ocean. It is composed of a blend of feldspar, quartz, and trace minerals in swirling black and white patterns. So, you know, here, here's where asking about provenance matters. 
Because if I buy this yeah. stone under the official trademark name, Mystic Merlinite, I might spend two to ten times as much as if I go buy the same stone sold as Indigo Gabbro. That remote island in the Indian Ocean described in that little blurb is Madagascar. Mm-hmm. And if it is transparently disclosed that the stone is from Madagascar, then I can, like, skip all the metaphysical names and go look at, oh, gosh, it's the same as this other rock that comes from Madagascar. That blend of minerals described is exactly the composition of a common gabbro. If I know that because of my geological background, then uh, why would I spend all the big money on the fancy metaphysical name? Um, Another really good example is another material called Vitalite, um, which is – very, very bluntly, it is the world's most common metamorphic rock. If you take something like granite and you expose it to pressure or heat, um, it changes over time and it creates a new rock. We call that new rock gneiss, G-N-E-I-S-S. Um, and that, that stone is being sold for thousands of dollars for, you know, like a four-inch sphere. When it is, in fact, like... If you visit your local mall, you will probably find tiles in the floor or walls made out of this metamorphic rock. You might find entire columns made out of it in historic buildings. You can get a countertop made from it for less than $200 per square meter. And yet, you might, wow. you might go and buy a four-inch sphere of it that's been polished with a trademarked name for almost $2,000. And, and it's because the provenance is intentionally obscured and the name has been altered because it's a way to keep people in the dark. So when we ask questions about provenance and nomenclature, we, we don't do it necessarily just because we're trying to be judgmental about the sources of things and just working on ethical extraction. We're also working on ethical marketing, ethical capitalism, which is kind of an oxymoron, mm-hmm. but we've got to do the best we can with the tools yeah. we've got. And asking questions about these trademark names is really, really important. And there are a lot of people who are making a lot of money selling common rocks under new names. Yeah, I don't have a problem with capitalism. I have a problem with capitalists. That's where my issue is. I don't have a – I don't – no, I'm not trying to touche. I'm I'm, – because everyone – I speak to who says that I feel like maybe I'm wrong. Maybe capitalism really is a bad thing, but it's how we live. Um, And you can, you can be a capitalist with a, with a clean conscience. If you, if they follow the steps that you're outlining, as far as knowing where your raw materials come from, I think this could apply really to any kind of industry, you know, I have I have arguments in my house about this, which is why I bring this up. And you know <laughs> who you are because I know you're listening. But capitalism is is a way to get things is is a way to get things done. Capitalism is only made evil by those who use it uh, as their most basic greed and desire to get more from everyone else. And I just want people to understand if you own a business and you're a capitalist, we're not saying you're a horrible person. However, you could be turning that into something horrible by what you do with it. So I, I just like to clear that up for the people in my house. Thank you. Um, because yeah. I can already hear, yeah, say it, Nicholas. Yeah, tell her. So, yeah. 
Sorry, I just had to do that for my own my own family. But you know, I, it's funny because you know, here's a, here's something that I have always felt that way about that you've just described. As far as is this a real thing or is it something that you can walk uh, down the street and pick up off the ground and someone is more than happy to sell it to you with their nomenclature for like a hundred dollars for something you just found on the floor. Um, can you please shed some light on what opalite actually is? Yeah. So um, first we're going to take a, a trip back in time, not too far ago, but right on. you know, up, in, up until about a couple decades ago on the market, the word opalite was maybe not the most common of terms, but was used to describe low-quality opals. So this was usually not the stuff without any sort of play of color or iridescence like we see in our precious opals, but opaque, maybe sometimes semi-translucent opals. And what, what they called opalite was usually that grade of opal if it had other stuff in it. So in other words, it was an opal-bearing uh-huh. rock. Um, sometimes it was mm-hmm. other stuff with opal in it. Um, and like even in the um, like gemstone therapy field, opalite is used to describe these kind of banded matrixy opals that are used therapeutically to deal with things like memory and karma. Um, but in, in the last decade in particular, another substance has kind of taken on the mantle of being called opalite. And so the scientific community has dropped using opalite altogether to describe those natural stones because there's too much confusion on the market. So what we see called right. opalite today is, man, is man-made glass. And that glass has an interesting effect called a contralouse um, that makes it appear to kind of, you know, it's got that, that glow to it. Um, and the, part uh-huh. of what causes that glow is an optical property called Rayleigh scattering. Now, Rayleigh scattering is a really cool thing that happens in physics when the bits of something scatter light that comes through. And in most cases, when we experience Rayleigh scattering in a substance or in a, in a, a field, Um, we see blue light come through that. But if you hold a piece of opalite, which has that kind of blue glow to it, up against a bright light, it'll be yellow or orange. There's no blue pigment in the stone whatsoever. It's actually orangey, but it's just the way light passing through it gets scattered that allows our eyes to perceive blue, because blue kind of cuts through the white noise of of that that material's makeup farther than anything else. Um, You know Uh what else is also caused? Is is blue from Rayleigh scattering? Our atmosphere. There's no blue pigment in the sky, but the makeup of our atmosphere (laughs) scatters photons. And so we see blue because blue travels the farthest. The particular wavelength that that makes it through all that is is the blue wavelength. So I think the the physics of opalite's color is really cool. Um, But Uh opalite is man-made glass. It has the same metaphysical properties as your windshield does. Now, my windshield is valuable. I like it. I enjoy it. It's it's an important part of my life. But right. I'm not going to enchant it and put a piece of it in my pocket or lay it on someone's mm-hmm. body for um, laying on of stones or add it to a crystal grid. Um, I'm not going to be mad if anyone else wants to, but I'm not going to have unrealistic right. expectations about what a piece of man-made glass is going to bring into my life. So 
uh, you know, opalite is one example of many man-made materials that are uh, commonly confused for other things. If someone doesn't know better and they get a piece of opalite, they might think they have a fine piece of opal or a really fine moonstone, but it does not have the same chemical composition as either of those things, doesn't have the same crystal structure, and it doesn't have the same optical, physical, chemical, electric, magnetic phenomena that those things do. So therefore, it cannot produce the same end results. If if what makes crystals do their job is a combination of their formative process, whether they're igneous, sedimentary, metamorphic, or somewhere in between, um, their chemical composition, what are the ingredients in it, and the crystal structure, sometimes the lack thereof, in other words, the way those ingredients are arranged, and to a lesser extent, hardness, diaphaneity, cleavage, color, other properties, um, then sure. a piece of man-made glass, we don't have any of those principles at play because it's not of geologic origin. It doesn't, it doesn't exhibit the stuff that rocks exhibit. Yes, there are natural glasses, uh, things like obsidian, moldavite, and other tectites, fulgurite. They're very mineral rich, and they form under different circumstances. So it's, it's a hard comparison right. to make. There's nothing wrong with appreciating a beautiful object. If you love opalite, keep enjoying opalite. Um, for the people out there who make the claims that, well, at least if it's a man-made stone, it's not putting an impact on the environment, and I hear this argument a lot, we have to come back to the yeah. statement I made at the beginning. Yeah. If it isn't grown, it's mined. Where did the stuff that opalite is made from come from originally? Well, the earth, the silica, yeah. the sand, the limestone, um, the alkali feldspars that went into it were all mined somewhere. So nothing mm-hmm. is without environmental impact. Absolutely enjoy your, your man-made stones, but, but, don't feel as if you get to be put on a pedestal because you didn't get something from Mother Nature, so you're not affecting the planet. Absolutely you are. The environmental impact of growing synthetic diamonds is actually greater than the environmental impact of, of mining diamonds. It's not to say really? it's the same social impact. Yeah. Um, right. Uh, uh, mining aluminum well, creates a far worse impact than recycling aluminum. And that's why aluminum is one of those materials that's more valuable to recycle um, because sure. there's so much demand for it. Uh, so like yeah. we, we have to remember nothing we do exists in a vacuum and everything eventually comes back to the earth. We're, we're picking it because it was grown out of the earth or we're mining it out mm-hmm. of the stuff that was, the earth is formed from everything. Okay, I need to go back, I'm, and I know we're, we're, we're running what would have been short on time, but I had to extend, if you can give me just some more extra time with you, because I, I do want to talk about the new book some. I do want to, I, I mean, I just, this is fascinating. You're amazing. I love having you on. But I, I just want to revisit something you just said about diamonds. When I found out that children were being forced to go and mine, go go get the diamonds, I immediately said, well, I'm never doing that again. And for a time when, you know, when I had a suitor who would want to buy me a piece of jewelry, I would say, I, I'm, I don't wear diamonds, I wear synthetic, di-. you know, if you want to get me something synthetic, that's fine. But you made a comment that, that's as harmful as the diamonds, getting the diamonds too. So please enlighten me on this. Well, sure. And here's, here's where I have to, to draw some lines here because um, um, 
the mining, the, the environmental impact of mining natural diamonds versus growing synthetic diamonds in a lab is, is yeah. not equivalent. The social impact is very okay. different. I mean, you go, you go to places where um, there's a high proportion of um, mining done uh, in, in the diamond industry, and you're going to see some pretty horrific things done to human beings. That's not, right. that's not the case when it comes to growing them in laboratories. But, but also, I'm, it's right. a strict one-for-one one comparison. I'm only talking about synthetic diamonds, not diamond substitutes or stimulants. Those, those have their own, okay. of course, things to go with it. Um, you know, things like mawsonite and cubic zirconia, they don't necessarily have the same right. environmental impact as an actual diamond created in a laboratory. Um, so mm -hmm. those are all things we got to consider. Um, the amount of electricity it requires to, to grow a synthetic diamond is so great that you could, you could power much more mining done for the same amount of stone, for the same size of stone. In fact, you could get far more diamonds with the same amount of energy if you're, you know, mm -hmm. using equipment out in the field versus growing them in an autoclave or something else to, to create a synthetic diamond. So um, mm -hmm. it's complex. It's nuanced. I, I, I think in this case, the, the human effect is far, far outweighs the environmental. If I were faced with a decision, you have to buy a diamond Nicholas. So you either have to get um, an unethically sourced natural diamond or Mm -hmm. a synthetic one grown with worse impact to the environment. If I was not allowed to abstain, I, I would choose the latter. I, I would obviously not choose to endanger human beings' lives so I could get a sparkly object. But, you know, right. the good news is that right. not, every, not every diamond comes from those kinds of sources. Uh, the right. large chains in the jewelry world go to great lengths to certify that they have conflict-free stones. You pay more for it. Mm -hmm. You can't know without yeah. a shadow of a doubt that every one of those stones that gets certified is, of course, conflict-free. But, you know, that's something that was instituted a, a long while back because of demands on the market. Yeah. We, we wanted to hold jewelers accountable for for these horrible things happening to the human beings who are doing the mining. And we we, we need to keep doing that. So, um, mm -hmm. sure, synthetic diamonds have uh, a big environmental impact, but the social one tends to be larger with natural diamonds. Yeah. Right. You know, there was also a lot of talk about, get you know, mining gold, and the price of gold is always in flux, and it's always high. Um, and for a while in the market, they were – saying that titanium was a good substitute, tungsten carbide was a good substitute. Um, but those have to be mined too, don't they? They do. Um, because they're less precious metals, uh, we'll say it is likely people will go to less drastic um, methods to get them. So I think that's part of the mm -hmm. reason we see uh, a lesser a lesser human impact, a lesser social impact with them. But at the end of the day, they're still being mined. There's still an environmental impact. And I, I'm no great expert in metal mining. Um, if we want to talk about the metaphysics of metals, I'm your guy. But um, yeah, I, I, I think it's just something we all have to kind of come to terms with. Everything we do yeah. creates ripples. So which kinds of ripples yeah. and how many of them are we okay with creating? And if you don't know, you mm. don't know. But when you start to know, when you start to find out, you tend to want to do better. 
So we start asking the hard questions yeah. and we start making decisions and maybe we don't buy conflict laden stones. Maybe we start getting mm-hmm. more stones from, uh, you know, little indie miners. Maybe we start going out into nature and finding our own rocks. Maybe we just use the yeah. rocks we've got. These might, these might all be things we do to, to kind of contribute to the, the end result we wish to see. But, you know, the, the truth is there's no single way out of this, and nobody is alone. So if you feel like all of this is staggering news to you and you don't know what to do, remember you're not alone in this. Reach out. I'm, I'm pretty accessible through social media. Ask for inspiration. I will point you toward mm-hmm. things that you can do. And, you know, just, just know that we can get through this together by, by unifying as best we can. And that's true of anything with the human condition. It's not just Mm -hmm. you against the world. We're all here together. So why not support one another? Why not find those, those little indie miners and artisanal operations and and spotlight them and, and do what we can and use our voice for the voiceless. Brilliant. Brilliant. And so true. Thank you. That, that's just, wow. What an education. Oh my gosh. I'm sure we could just (laughs) continue to discuss this, but I also want to talk about, your upcoming book, please talk about Flower Essences from the Witch's Garden. Oh, thank you so much. So I'm really excited for this. Um, I'm sure I'm not saying anything groundbreaking when I say last year was a strange year. Um, so one, one of the tools, right, yeah, one of the tools that I had been working with more and more frequently over the past few years, um, but especially in the last two, has been Flower Essences. And mm. during, during like the height of the isolation during the pandemic, when my day job was um, not allowing customers in and I, I was like in that really kind of uncertain experience, I was, of course, naturally using flower essences, uh, among other things. Mm-hmm. I was engaging with my crystals and my other spiritual practices and tools, um, but sure. essences were something that was just so gentle, natural, loving and they were such a good support for me. But then I started thinking about how I work with essences in some pretty non-traditional ways. Um, you know, usually with flower essence therapy, for those of you listening who aren't familiar with what essences are, they're highly dilute preparations made with this sort of energetic or vibrational quality of a plant. So it's not like a tincture. It's not like you've made a tea or an extract um, using botanical matter. Uh, usually essences are made with the flowers of a plant that get floated in a bowl of clean, pure, clear water under direct sunlight, mm-hmm. sometimes moonlight. And there, there are other ways you can make these infusions. And then similar to homeopathic remedy, it goes through stages of successive dilution to potentize it, to make it more powerful energetically by making the, the physical stuff even more subtle. So when you take a flower essence, the, the only physical substances you're consuming are water and whatever preservative is used, like brandy or vodka or vinegar or glycerin. So you're not actually taking in the, the the chemical property of a plant. Instead, what you're doing when, when you make an essence is you are co-creating with the plant spirit, the consciousness, the deva, the oversoul, the angel, however you visualize that, to create this sort of like energetic snapshot in the water mm-hmm. of what the blessings, mm-hmm. the virtues, the healing qualities of that plant spirit might be. So, you know, naturally, when, when you go to a conventional flower essence therapist, 
there's usually some sort of interview or story time involved. You talk about what's going on in life. You look at what uh, plants match those kind of signatures, those patterns in your life, and they'll make up a bottle for you. It's usually a personalized blend. Um, And and then you take that orally or you apply it topically. Over the years, flower essence therapy Mm -hmm. has gotten – uh, a lot more fun, we'll say. There are ways that you can infuse essences in the room. You can spray them in the aura. You can combine them with other things. Add them to your drinking water, mm-hmm. your tea, your other beverages. Put them in your foods. Add them to skin creams. Uh, you, you can just do so many things. But it's always struck me as kind of odd how more witchy people don't love flower essences because, I mean, we love plants. We love herbs. We love trees. Yeah. We love poisonous things. And sometimes it's sure. not always easy to work with them in a material sense. But our goal, you know, when perform an act of magic, when you use, let's say, oak in a ritual or a spell, it's not the material yeah. body of the oak that's doing the work. It's not the acorn or the bark or the leaf that actually does the magic. That is merely a vessel for the spirit of oak to work with you. And it, when we recognize that it is partnership with the spirit of the plant that, that creates the magic, then we don't always necessarily need the material substance. We just have to find a way to seek communion with the plant kingdom. Essences are a shortcut yeah. to this. I'm, I'm, I'm not necessarily about taking every shortcut you can find, but if there's a really viable one and it really, really works, why wouldn't you? So with flower essences, you can draw in that plant spirit consciousness into whatever the work is that you're doing. And so I use flower essences um, in substitutes of a lot of material plant stuff. Now, as much as any other witch, I like to burn shit. I mean, give me some great resin, some good smelling herbs, let me throw that into a fire or on a charcoal, and I'm going to, you know, absolutely love it. But some things aren't safe to do that with. I, you're not going to find me burning copious amounts of belladonna or Amanita muscaria or right. you know, other baneful things. I love the energies of them. I grow some in my garden. I, I have a sort of like immense fascination for, for these baneful plants, but I am overcautious about how I work with their material bodies. Flower essences are a way for me to incorporate their energies safely, sanely, and, yeah. um, you know, the great thing about an essence is, in most cases, the, the worst byproduct, if, if something, if you're not using the right essence for the right situation, the worst thing that will happen is absolutely nothing. Because they're like emotional, spiritual tuning forks. And if something's mm-hmm. not out of tune, the tuning fork isn't doing anything at all. So if you work with, you know, let's say, uh, Datura flower essence, if, if it's not the right plant spirit for you, very little is going to happen, if anything at all. It's not like overusing the material body of the plant, using a tincture or something that could be really dangerous. So essences are essentially right. to work with all of these plants. But also I started incorporating them into my ordinary, everyday kind of magical things. If I was crafting in a, uh, we'll say an incense or yeah, a tincture, I might add a couple drops of a flower essence because it's such a pure embodiment of the plant spirit that it, it amplifies that substance I'm creating. If, you know, obviously if I'm doing an incense, I have to give it time to dry afterwards. That's a great way to incorporate uh, like a, a, a big boost of energy into what you're doing. When doing anything with a chalice or a cauldron that's filled with liquid, I will often add an mm-hmm. essence or two or three or more um, that 
that highlights the energy that I'm working with. So whether that is, you know, the, the, the chalice and the blade for the great right, I might combine essences that represent the union of those sort of polar forces together. I might just fill it with something that embodies the nature of the ritual I'm doing. Like if I'm doing something for love or healing, I might, I might pick a plant that has the appropriate astrological um, signature to kind of complement that work. And then I started using them almost as, we'll say potions in and of themselves and creating these sort of harmonious yeah. blends of essences that were all unified around a common theme. And I thought, yeah. you know, I do all this. Um, one of my friends, mentors and teachers, Christopher Penzak writes about it a little bit in some of his books. Yes. He's got a great book called the plant spirit familiar where he talks about flower essences. And then also in um, uh, the temple of shamanic witchcraft, he has a section on essences and plant spirits, but there's no book, no whole book, that is written just about working with flower essences from that magical perspective. And I was in the shower one day in the middle of a pandemic thinking, I need a new project. I want to do something different. Let's do this. <laughs> and, and it came to me. And, and um, somehow once, once the store reopened and I went back to working full time or more, um, I wrote my biggest book in nine months during the pandemic. So here it is. Wow. It's coming out. Um, we're looking at probably spring or summer of 2022. So it's still about a year off, maybe a little over a year. And uh, I don't have yeah. any other details about the release just yet, but sometime this fall, the pre-order will open up and I plan on being able to tour again by the time the book is out. So we'll be yeah. able to do fun things in the field with flowers and essences. And it'll be so much fun to, to bring this work to so many people. And, you know, I wanted to mention the fact that as somebody who lives in an apartment, it's not really practical for me to even necessarily burn anything on charcoal for that reason. So this is definitely going to be useful for somebody like me who can't just burn certain things. That, well, I mean, regular stick incense is, is one thing, but when you are – um, doing something heavily magical um, that calls for more. I was wondering how to incorporate, you know, some of the things that I would need in a non-burning fashion. So this sounds brilliant for somebody like me um, who needs to use these essences. So I wanted to ask, so the book, is it about um, your discovery of of, of using the flower essences or is it um does it teach how to create them and perhaps practical applications all of the above thank you so much for asking by the way yeah um yeah uh it has a directory <laughs> of currently about a hundred different flower essence profiles in there and kind of uh -huh. the same way I, I straddle mineral science with the metaphysics of crystal healing, I kind of bridge the world of flower essence therapy with traditional magical herbalism. So you're kind of looking uh -huh. at the, the interrelationship between the therapeutic indications of a flower essence, the sort of um, psychological and spiritual patterns that they represent and help us balance and, and finding the roots for that in the more traditional witchy lore behind these plants. And sometimes the parallels are just so obvious. You're like, well, duh, of course, of course this flower works in this way. It's so obvious. And, and other times it's a little bit surprising. So it, it introduces you to a hundred different flowers. 
gives you therapeutic indications and magical uses as well as correspondences for each one. Um, it's got a chapter on flower essence spells and rituals, a formulary of different blends that you might make, whether that is blends for the eight sabbats or blends for like specific magical outcomes. There's even like a, a we'll say a, a witchy alternative to rescue remedy, which is the world's most popular flower essence blend, world's most well-known flower sure. essence blend. Um, I've used it. And then it's sure. got, mm-hmm. yeah, and it's great stuff. There's always always a bottle on my person if I go out in public. Um, wow. Uh, it's got stuff from making your own essences to uh, creating blends, how to kind of work through the, the, the methods to choose them most effectively, different applications for them in everyday life, and then some not-so-everyday life. So um, I really have to credit my teachers in the flower essence world, um, not just Christopher yeah. Penzak, but um, Sue Lilly, um, has been such a huge influence on me with my essence work. Emily Ruff, who who yeah. runs the Florida School of Holistic Living, taught this incredible class on um, Bach flower essence therapy. And, and I've been lucky to to study with some other incredible people, studying floral acupuncture uh, with, with the originator of the system, Deborah Creighton, which is all about like topical applications of flower essences that like merges flower essence therapy with, um, yeah. you know, the, the acupuncture zones of the body. Uh, all of these things kind of intermingle in my work and, and, and influence it. But um, it, that I, I think people who like flower essences as flower essence therapists are going to get a lot of value from seeing new ways to use essences and their therapeutic practice. And then witchy people who are looking for new ways to work with plants are also going to find something of value here. So my, my goal was to write a book that both, both camps would enjoy. That's wonderful. I, I can't wait to get it so I can have you back on so we can discuss that deeper in depth. Um, Absolutely. Nicholas, thank you so much for coming on. Please tell people how to find you and if you're teaching any classes and, and maybe where people will be able to see you in person. Do you have anything lined up? Sure. So um, I'm pretty accessible online. I'm at the Luminous Pearl in most places. So um Facebook slash The Luminous Pearl, at The Luminous Pearl on Instagram and TikTok. And my website is theluminouspearl.com. And I do have some events lined up for, for the season. Currently, I'm only doing virtual events, trying to be as proactive during the pandemic as possible until we're kind yep. of at that safe zone with herd immunity. Uh, I do have a, a couple of live events coming up soon on uh, a week from today, I'm doing a workshop on beryl, like aquamarine and emerald and heliodor. Um, it's part of my monolith series where we dive real deep into one kind of stone. And I do one of these each month. So, you know, we've covered things from like quartz and selenite and garnet. And next is going to be beryl. And this is going to be an ongoing series that I hope to do for as long as possible. And I also do a free mm-hmm. monthly Reiki share. Reiki is another thing I'm super passionate about. So um, the next one of those will be mid-June. Uh, all of those links are going to be available on my social media. So you'll be able to, to access any of those. And I do have a couple other workshops coming up soon. So if you, if you track me down online, if you're not able to find links, just send me a message. I'll send it all to you. I will gladly make it accessible. Well, if you send it to me, I'll post it on the show page. Be happy to. Excellent. Thank you. Oh, of course, of course. Nicholas Pearson, you're wonderful. Thank you so much for spending some time with me and some extra time. I know I kept you late, but 
you're fascinating and your opinions are, are really valuable right now. You know, we have a chance to maybe do things better than we had done them before. And, you know, I just consider you an inspiration and I really thank you for your wisdom this hour. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Raina. It's been a pleasure and I look forward to next time. Me too. Everybody, Nicholas Pearson, look him up. He's a great writer, has great books, and I'm really looking forward to the new one. All right, everybody, I am going to wrap it here, and I will see you next week. Have a great rest of your weekend. Bye, everyone.